Hey, to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 31. Excuse me. Psalm 31. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And in your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you lead me and you guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. An object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have become forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many. Terror is on every side. As they scheme together against me and as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant and save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. 
As we continue making our way through the Psalms, I think we have, I hope, begun to notice a certain trend that each of the Psalms that we read, each of these Psalms that we sing, can be sung in one sense about Christ, in another sense to Christ, and also with Christ. I think as we have heard this psalm, perhaps the verse that stuck out most poignantly is verse 5, a phrase, a verse that we are all familiar with, as these are the final words of Christ on the cross. Think about it. In his moment of deepest distress, our Savior being crushed for our iniquities gushed forth with the words of Psalm 31. Even as all hope seemed lost, he continued to entrust himself to his faithful deliverer, his mighty fortress. For those of you who are familiar with the story of Acts, we find that these happen to be the final words of Stephen as well, as he is being stoned to death as he entrusts himself to his faithful God. Here, both Christ and Stephen appropriate the words of David onto their lips, where David's own deliverance from death serves as a model for salvation to us, to remind us that God grants this salvation to all who confide in him. I'd like to take this psalm in four distinct units. First, I would like to consider God as our fortress. We see in verses 1 to 8. Secondly, I'd like to consider God as our face. We'll talk about what we mean by that in verses 9 to 18. God is our cover in verses 19 to 22, and the courage that God gives in verses 23 and 24. So fortress, face, cover, and courage. David begins by speaking of his faithful God as our mighty fortress. No doubt the reason why uh, you know, I, I picked this evening's opening hymn sing that great hymn of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God. Here, David serves as almost a proverbial thesaurus. He stockpiles words upon words to characterize what Yahweh is to David. Seven times David uses synonyms for God here in these first eight verses, or actually these first five verses even, as our rock our refuge, and our fortress. Three times he uses words that speaks of God as the one who saves, who delivers, and who rescues. And three times he speaks of this God as one who leads, who guides, and takes us out from the net. It's as if David is trying to say something. How many ways can he say the same thing over and over again? This is not filler space. This is to assure our own hearts that God is, in fact, our mountain stronghold. Quite literally, we find 
one of these phrases, being that he is the house of a mountain stronghold. One particular commentator translates it as a fort house. Here, David is evoking martial imagery, that God is an impregnable citadel. And yet, in some important sense, which David will return to towards the end of the psalm, this impregnable citadel is as a fortress on the move. A portable fortress. As though this were a military outpost in the wilderness for the exposed pilgrim. I mean, recall the first decade or so of David's reign as king. Uh, his king was not one of you know, lollipops and candy corn and roses. First decade or so of his inauguration as king, he finds that his life hangs by a thread. He is alone and exposed, betrayed, abandoned, surrounded. David is even in many, many times as far from the capital as it were. Far from Jerusalem. A king on the run. A king in humiliation. And yet, even at those times when he is not able to make it to the place of worship, he knows that he is not far from his heavenly Father's protective hand. Though it might seem all hope is lost, Calvin writes, commenting on this psalm, God remains his faithful guardian. And so even when all hope seems lost, David commits his soul to his Redeemer. Here we see uh, in verse 6, David contrasting the God of truth, the God of faithfulness, depending upon what translation you're using, it's the same word in Hebrew. But how fascinating it is that he contrasts God's abiding faithfulness with the lying lips of the fleeting idols of his foes. They are vain and fleeting and transitory and unreliable. These idols only get a passing reference in verse 6. Over and against the treasure trove of acclamation rendered to Yahweh, David's Mount Refuge, we find that the idols, they're mentioned in passing. Though them and those who worship those idols present such a great terror, God stands bigger in the imagination of the king of Israel. David finds himself in dire straits. Those sorrows of which he speaks of in verse 7 when he says, you have known the distress of my soul is a word that describes the suffocating, asphyxiating feeling of being entrapped. And what a contrast it is here when he says, oh Lord, you know the constriction through which I am enduring this, in, this narrowness in contrast to the wide, fertile plains of God's unbounded love as you have set my feet in a broad place. David is, has, has, as it were, been um, backed into a corner. And miraculously, the Lord brings him into wide open spaces. David knows his sure and steadfast Redeemer. And so calls upon him to save him from the terrors that surround him, both from without and those terrors from within. You see that here in verses 9 
to 18. David is exhausted. He can't seem to catch a break in his life. He has no happy, clappy life as a king. His reign is one that is beset with weariness and vexation. A very good friend of mine who once described to me as he was preaching his way through Samuel and Kings, he says how striking it is that David, uh, or whereas Solomon gives us a uh, a portraiture, as it were, of Christ and his exaltation, ruling and reigning in wisdom, we find in David the king in humiliation picture of what the suffering Messiah would undergo. Long before even the the incident with Bathsheba, David's reign is beset with sorrow and sadness. Here is a man of sorrows as his body wastes away under the terrors that surround him. He uses words to describe his whole body, his eyes, his soul, his body, his strength, his bones. He says, my life is spent. It's come to an end. Suffering from terrors without and within, he he has been avoided by his neighbors. He has been abandoned by his friends. He has been attacked by his enemies and assaulted by his own sinful conscience. You see that there in verse 10. He has no other place to flee for refuge. He feels utterly alone. Who is there for him to turn to? Where can he fly for safety? In a single word, David summarizes his own situation. Terror on every side. It's as if David is trapped in a horror movie, both existentially from within and also by his enemies that surround him from without. He is grief-stricken, isolated, and terrified. He is forgotten. He describes himself as a dead man. Nobody even remembers. Broken like a cheap clay pot. Same imagery that Paul himself speaks of in his ministry in 2 Corinthians. We bear this, this treasure in earthen clay pots. To know that the power of the resurrection belongs to Christ and not to us. David knows what it is like to be a man totally broken. Echoing the language of Psalm 2, David says that his enemies have taken counsel together against the Lord's anointed to put him to death. And there is no one to give him aid. There is no one to give him comfort. There is no one to give him solace. There is no one to give him rest. And yet, even in the midst of his terror, he continues to entrust himself fully to his mountain fortress. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Though all hope seems lost, though pursued and persecuted, he clings to God's promises. Here we find David giving full voice to the heart of the covenant. What is the heart of the covenant? Where the Lord tells His people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what is it that comes from David's lips? We see here that David musters, as it were, his last bit of strength to say this, you are my God. It's a few simple words, but so rich 
demonstrates his unwavering confidence, frail and weak as he is, terrified as he is. He knows that there is a God who will save. What a contrast this psalm is to that of Psalm 30 that we considered just two weeks ago. Remember David who had put his trust in his own military power and strength and numbers towards the end of his life. It's not found here. Here in this psalm, David recognizes where his boast and confidence truly lies. He says, I've got no other leg to stand on. I can't even stand on my own righteousness. Again, verse 10, the the horrors of my conscience continue to plague me because of my own iniquity. David here is not boasting in his own strength when he uh, puts his hope in God. It's the exact opposite. He recognizes he has nothing less uh, else to fall back on. Clearly, the psalm attests to David's superabounding weakness, both externally and internally, both physically and spiritually. And yet we find that his faith is not in his own faith, as if he is trying to muster up the strength just to kind of believe more, to do better. No, he recognizes he has no resources in himself. What he needs is an an alien righteousness. A salvation that stands outside of himself. Here we find that reiteration of verse 5 where he says, into your hands I commit, your, I commit my spirit. He, he essentially says the same thing again in verse 15. Now he says, my times are in your hand. Do, do what you will. I think perhaps one remembers the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they stand before the fiery furnace being threatened to, to be tossed in unless they bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. What is that they say? They said, our, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bend the knee. That's the same faith we see being exhibited here. David entrusts himself fully to his faithful God and says, do what you will. There is a reckless abandon to the sovereign care of his faithful Redeemer. And he asks for a blessing. You see that here in verse 16. Make your face to shine on your servant. Isn't that what we hear every Sunday morning? The closing benediction to Lord's Day worship. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. What can man do to me if God's face shines upon us? To know the favor of God. What else is there that we need? And that is David's prayer. Oh Lord, let Your face shine on me. Grant to me that salvation. You see, that's what he means here. If you ask, what does it mean, O Lord, make your face shine on your servant? You see the answer there in the second half of this verse. Save me in your steadfast love. Your covenant fidelity. Not according to David's own strength, but according to God's solemn promise. Where when God makes a promise, He will not break it. Such is His promise to His anointed one and to all those who put their hope in the Lord's Messiah. David not only prays for salvation for himself, but here as the anointed king of Israel, he prays for his enemies who roar in their arrogance not to triumph. 
More pointedly, he prays that they be cast down to the grave. Remember uh, Psalm 30. Will the dust praise you? Well, now that, that concept kind of still stands here in the background, as it were. Because the enemies of David, the enemies of Yahweh, if they won't praise the Lord, let them return to the dust. What else are they good for? And now we find that David's petition gives way to praise. Here in verses 19 to 22, David evokes two distinct images of Israel's exodus and their time in the wilderness. And this is where I think it's important. Remember when I said in the first half of the, uh, the psalm, David's using this imagery of God as this kind of fortress on the go. I wish I had a better word, some type of concept to explain or to illustrate this. But if you consider some type of mountain citadel on wheels. But David's not drawing this out of thin air. He begins to evoke language of Israel's own time in the wilderness. Two particular images are seen here in verses 19 to 22. First, (coughs) David begins to describe Israel's Um, one of their great feasts. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here in verses 19 and 20, David begins to loud God's superabounding goodness. Two times here he says, O Lord, you have stored up. Here God is hiding a precious cargo treasure trove for his people. God's goodness is seen in hiding his people from the plots and the whispers of men. But I want you to note here how it is that they are hidden. Look at verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge uh, in you. In the side of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them. God becomes to them a cover. The New American Standard, instead of cover, uses the language of the the secret place. Quite literally, the Hebrew word there is booth. I'm going to recall Israel's context in the wilderness, so you can read about it uh, when you get home. Leviticus chapter 23 Verses 33 and following, even in Israel's pilgrimage, they were called to celebrate three festivals a year. One of those three major festivals was the Feast of Booths. Here they were called to erect a temporary shelter, to dwell in that shelter. And the Lord signifies to his people the meaning of that is that they are pilgrims seeking a better country, but even as they are pilgrims on the go, the Lord will be a booth to them. Now, as the first half of the psalm, David is speaking of the Lord as that mountain fortress on the go. Now, David begins to appropriate the imagery of Israel in the wilderness, saying that the Lord will be their booth. And that that feast of booths that they celebrate, they erect that temporary shelter, signifies for them that God is still their fortress, even as they were a pilgrim people without a homeland, seeking that heavenly destination. I want you to think about Israel as they make their way through uh, uh, the wilderness, even as, Israel, even as Egypt is, is chasing after them at the banks of the Red Sea. What comes between them, uh, Israel, and uh, Pharaoh's army? 
the cloud and the pillar protects them from all harm. Even as they make their way in the wilderness, there is the cloud, the pillar of fire by night to keep them from freezing in the wilderness, and the cloud by day to keep them from dying of, of sunstroke. The Lord is their protector. He is the shade at their right hand. Not only does David speak of the God of Israel as his booth, as his secret place, as his cover, David then begins to appropriate the language of the Exodus itself. Here you see that here in verses 21 and 22. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Again, notice that idea that David is hemmed in. Even when he is under duress, God is that portable fortress, that faithful fortress on the go. And David says, I have said in my alarm, quite literally, I have said in my haste, Appropriating the same language of Israel the night of the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. What is it they were supposed to do is they were to partake of the Passover sacrifice. They were to eat girded in haste because the moment of their redemption was drawing nigh. You think of Israel as they make it to the banks of the Red Sea, as they're fleeing in haste, and they turn around and they see Pharaoh's army. And they say, what is... We're going to be cut off. Pharaoh's army is going to drive us into the ocean or into the sea. We're going to drown. Surely we are done for. Even as they they, they cry out in in agony and distress and terror, we find that God makes a way where there seems to be no other way. He causes the, 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 the water in the wilderness to split in two and opens up a highway of salvation for His people, the highway of holiness. David appropriates that language the night of the Passover, there, where on the night of their redemption, they were to eat girded, dressed, and ready for the moment of their liberation. And here David, despite the mounting terror that he faces on every side, he tosses himself at the mercy of his God, And just like Israel at the Red Sea, he is delivered. Like Israel in the wilderness, he is led safely through. His booth, that portable shelter, has proven to be more sure than the strongest earthly mountain citadel could ever provide them. How could a... They didn't have bamboo, but you get the idea. How could like a a portable bamboo hut full of sticks or, or leaves ever be stronger than a mountain fortress. Yet that's the very thing that Israel's annual feast signified. That even when all hope seems lost, even in our moments of greatest weakness, God is our sure salvation. How can the elements of the bread and the cup seem so paltry when we participate in the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings? It's not enough even to feed our bellies. And yet, God has ordained it in such a way that it feeds our faith in a way that no steak buffet ever could. God uses the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. To show that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that the weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. 
Here God serves as the bastion of His people and He will not be moved. No matter where His people are, no matter where His people go, though they are strangers in a barren land, they are not without protection. Though like a city beleaguered and besieged, David is kept safe. And now in these closing verses, David turns to address the people. Here we find what one commentator calls the interpretive key to the psalm. David addresses the people of God. Love the Lord, all you His saints. Why? Because just as the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, just as the Lord was a shelter to Israel in the wilderness, just as the Lord delivered David and became to him that fortress on the go, so too will the Lord preserve the recipients of his covenant faithfulness. This is a promise that is not simply held out to the Davidic king. This promise is a, this is a promise that is held out to all the people of God. To all who entrust themselves to the Lord. He will be that faithful fortress. So here is that general exhortation that David gives. What consolation and comfort there is to be had in knowing that our God is, in fact, a mighty fortress. Oh, what joy it is to know that our great Jehovah guides us through a dry and barren land. As we'll sing shortly, I am weak, but Thou art mighty. Hold me with Thy powerful hand. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, Ever be my strength and my shield. It is no wonder then that our Savior chose this psalm to be the final words to come from His lips on the cross. In His greatest moment of despair, even as He hung on the cross surrounded by His foes, abandoned by His friends, the object and taunt and whispers by those who looked on, nevertheless with His dying breath He uttered this Psalm, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Christ now serves as a model for us to join him in this psalm and trust our faithful God who promises to save. Even while hanging on the cross, Stephen too, as he was being stoned by his murderers, when death comes, will you still entrust yourself to the one who has promised to deliver you through death? Not simply from death, but through it. Who promises to bring you through the valley of the shadow of death faithfully to the other side where you will discover that the sting of death is no more. That death has been defanged. It has no power over those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. At the cross, Satan was defeated. Death has been undone. And so this psalm reminds us that you are safe in your heavenly Father's hands. In life, yes. But so also in death. And so you can trust the God who will not deceive you. Who will not leave you or forsake you. Let the psalm feed your faith. Let it teach you what true faith really is. Just because you are afraid does not mean that you do not believe. 
David says here he is surrounded by terror. He is terrified on every side from without and within. And yet his faith is still present. It reminds us that it is not the strength of our faith that matters. It is the object. Quite literally, it is not faith that saves. It is the object of our faith who saves. It is Christ who saves. And though our faith might be weak, though our faith might be strong, it is the object of our faith that matters. Where are you placing your trust? You might feel like your faith is weak and feeble and frail, that you feel, might feel like you are on your last leg. Put your hope in Christ. He's stronger than your faith. For He is the one that we trust who is both willing and able to save to the uttermost all who believe in Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider Your Word this evening, we pray that You would comfort our hearts, and even when our faith is weak at times, we pray that the one in whom we have put our faith would be unshakable, would prove himself to be yet again the faithful God who delivers us time and time again. Even on the day when we draw our last breath, we pray that you would grant us the faith to entrust our soul and our spirit to you who promises to preserve us and to raise us up from the dead on that great and glorious final day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.